1: Over a four-decade career, Rush has built an obsessive cult of fans who marvel at the group's unbelievable instrumental prowess and the epic 20-minute
2: prog rock suites. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Geddy Lee and Alex Lifeson of Rush join us for a conversation, and we will review the latest from polarizing rapper Kanye West. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to review The Life of Pablo, the new Kanye West album. I hesitate to say the new Kanye West album, because I think Kanye is still tinkering with that album, Jim. It is being remixed as we speak. We're going to review a version of The Life of Pablo. A version that
1: that, that was for sale for a time. First, we have some music news. Greg, that's a little bit of TikTok, the huge hit single from a few years ago by Kesha. Free Kesha is the rallying cry many people are now uh, trumpeting. Hashtag Free Kesha from her decade-long recording contract with Sony Music. Kesha is saying she does not want to deliver more music to the label that signed her at age 18 because she doesn't want to work with her producer, the record company impresario Dr. Luke. 42-year-old Lucas Gottwald. She has said in a lawsuit that is ongoing that Dr. Luke sexually, physically, verbally, and emotionally abused her. That's the new twist here. Lots of artists signed to long-term contracts have wanted out. The unique thing is she wants out because of this abuse. Dr. Luke has denied all the charges Kesha has made. You have, in recent weeks, a lot of superstar female musicians rallying to her side. In fact, Taylor Swift has donated $250,000 to Kesha to quote, help with any of her financial needs during this trying time. Justice Shirley Werner-Kornreich denied a motion by Kesha and her attorneys asking that the contract be dismissed. This is just recently. This is what's really setting off the firestorm. Said the judge, you're asking the court to decimate a contract that was heavily negotiated and typical for the recording industry. That is not praise, Mm. right? We know the recording industry has a horrible history, more than half a century long, of tying artists up forever and constraining them creatively. Rarely has it been a case where a woman has said, I'm being abused by this person that you're forcing me to work with. Some people are saying that Sony's getting so much bad publicity here, they're going to settle with her and let her go. Other people, more cynical people who know the way the music industry works, say the music industry never backs down on a contract and it would set a bad precedent to do so. But in the court of public opinion, people are clearly with Kesha and not with Dr. Luke.
2: That is make me like you, the new Gwen Stefani video. If you were one of the twenty-five million people that watched the Grammys Gym, you probably saw that three and a half minute commercial slash video slash promotion for her new album, new single, comeback. Well, it's been regarded by a lot of people as a watershed moment for the way music is marketed. This was a live video, 40 performers, 11 different sets. Stefani has seven live costume changes on this 32,000-square-foot soundstage. There's people dancing inside this logo of the sponsor of the ad, Target, right? So... There's all these big corporations involved here. Target, you've got the creative agency Deutsch, you've got Stefani's Interscope Records label, you've got Azov Music Management, you know, viewed with 3 billion media impressions, according to Target, 2 million plays on Spotify already, 2 million uh, views on Vivo, tying in with this whole yearning by TV for live music events. Let's not give us the canned stuff, give us the real stuff as it's really happening.
1: Give us Grease and the Whiz. Yes,
2: absolutely. But here we're talking about a 20 12 million dollar promotion budget. This is like a throwback to the days when they were spending a hundred million dollars on videos in the 90s. A lot of people are saying watershed moment. I don't think it's one at all. To me it's more of a throwback moment to the way things used to be done back in the 90s. We're going to find out in March when Stefani's new album This Is What the Truth Feels Like actually comes out. you are listening to Sound Opinions and that's Rush with a performance of their classic instrumental YYZ off of their new R40 live set, documenting their 40th anniversary tour. That's a song that showcases the famed instrumental virtuosity of all three Rush members, Alex Lifeson, Neil Peart and Geddy Lee. The band formed in Toronto in the late 60s and released their first album in 1974 and since then there have been numerous incarnations of Rush. The early albums featured Led Zeppelin-influenced hard rock. Then they entered a period where they were exploring these science fiction themes on progressive rock, side-long album suites that the fans absolutely loved. Those were the lyrics by Neil Peart, and that is considered the golden era of Rush for many fans. In the 80s, Rush scored radio hits with songs like The Spirit of Radio and Tom Sawyer and entered into a synth-driven phase soon after. Now, they've committed to reinventing themselves yet again. Every few decades, Rush comes up with a new sound, a new look, but it's basically those three core members, and the fan base loves them for it. I would say this is one of the most obsessive fan bases in the whole world, Jim.
1: It's almost a little frightening, Greg, and that's from someone who would consider himself a lifelong Rush fan. It is joyously geeky and cultish. You're on the bus or off the bus with Rush. There are so many reasons to love Rush. They've never stopped moving forward. They've never stopped challenging themselves. There is that virtuosity, but it's never at the expense of the song. It's always put to use in rocking hard. Drummer Neil Peart, I'm sorry to say, rarely gives interviews, but I'm really excited to have Rush bassist and vocalist Getty Lee and guitarist Alex Lifeson as guests on the show. Alex, Getty, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, Hey, how you doing? Great to be here. Why don't we start at the very beginning? Junior high is when you two first met? That's right, yeah. Yeah, we met in grade seven. Wow, seventh grade. What what, what was the musical passions in seventh grade for both of you?
3: Um, I think we kind of bonded over a band called The Cream. Mm -hmm. Uh, We both really liked what they were doing, and uh, we listened to their records, and wanted to sort of emulate them and people like John Mayle and the Blues Breakers
4: Yardbirds
3: uh, Yardbirds yeah early Yardbirds and Buffalo Springfield those were the bands that were kind of turning us on at the same time
1: people forget how much blues permeates the catalog uh, especially on those first three albums like up to 2112
3: yeah that's really true Mm -hmm. Uh, and even now there's still moments where we really try to indulge that bluesy feel (laughs) But we're so restless as players and as writers, particularly me, that sometimes those uh, influences get kind of buried under all the time changes and all (laughs) the... The The complexities. The techno, uh, you know, abilities that you have in terms of uh, editing your music together now.
4: But that's not really dissimilar from uh, Zeppelin. When you listen to the Zeppelin material, a lot of it's based in the blues, but some of it is just so outside and jimmy page was such a great writer for that reason
2: yeah it's a launching pad as opposed to the final destination uh... exactly for you guys for sure the band has an incredible reputation as great musicians i think the musicianship is one of the things that has been an attraction for a lot of the fans alex uh, let's start with you where did you develop your acumen on the guitar
4: i was self-taught i started when i was twelve years old i didn't take any lessons until i was seventeen And then I took classical guitar for a year with a friend who was a classical guitar teacher. And those were really the only lessons I ever had. So I just sat down with records and played them over and over again until I could figure out the riff or the solo or whatever it was that I was working on. And then uh, committed it to memory.
2: Wow. So just deconstructing music as you were listening to it and trying to figure out how to
4: do it yourself. I can picture it like it was yesterday, <laughs> sitting there by a little record player with all those pennies <laughs> taped on top of the stylus, and just going back and forth, particularly the solo from from a Cream Song, actually, from Spoonful. Uh-huh. And I remember when I actually figured it out and I could play it all the way through, it was one of the high points of my life, I think. <laughs>
2: Katie, what about you?
3: Pretty much the same story. I was self-taught around the same age and uh, originally started on uh, six-string guitar. The group of basement guys I was jamming with needed a bass player, so they voted me as the bass player. (laughs) I had to go buy one, (laughs) find one. (laughs) Were you happy Uh, about
2: that? Were you happy about saying, okay, kid, I know you play guitar, but now you're going to play bass?
3: Actually I was.
2: I was kind of excited at the idea of learning that instrument
3: and once I started playing it, once I begged my mother for the money to go buy a an instrument, mm-hmm. I really fell in love with it pretty quickly. You know, as Alex said, I started learning all these great songs by The Cream and other people and I quickly found that it was something I was quite good at and that of course at that age makes you feel good that there's something you can do pretty well.
1: Grandma wasn't so thrilled, though, I gather, Getty, right?
3: Yeah, my grandmother lived with us at the time, and uh, my pals, like Alex and John, would come over, and we would practice in the basement sometimes, and it was an almighty noise that we were creating. Very loud. And (laughs) she really could not understand what was happening here. She was very upset. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this woman survived the Holocaust. She was an incredible woman. She had to survive all that just to face the horrible (laughs) noise we
5: were making. (laughs)
1: When did you guys know that it was really gelling, that you had something special, that the identity was forming? Because I, I look at the first two albums as sort of like you're stumbling along and you're getting somewhere interesting. And then I think, you know, of course, every Rush fan has their own uh, analysis. But, I, you know, to me, it really gels with 2112. Yeah, I would say yeah. that that's accurate. I, but
3: I would say the weirdness of Caress of Steel was a really important stepping stone to 2112. hmm because when we attempted that kind of failed sidelong experiment with the fountain of Lamneth, after time we saw that there was a lot wrong with that. And uh, when we set out to make twenty one twelve it was, you know, to, to get it right. So, you know, I've often said this and I really believe it's true. You have to fail in order to succeed and Caress of Steel was super important for that reason.
2: Well, and there was also the key change with with the drummers. After John Halsey apparently decided that touring life was not for him and left the group in 1974. Mm -hmm. What was the story behind Neil Peart joining the band?
4: Well, he came to audition. We auditioned three drummers at the time, and Neil was the second drummer. Here's this tall, lanky guy with very short hair. He looked very nerdy, totally uncool. And Ged and I, of course, were in our velvet pants and platform shoes, and we were the epitome of cool. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this guy's never going to fit in our band looking like this. And he set up his drums, and there were a set of Rogers drums, and they were very small, like small toms, a small kick drum. And they looked very unusual with this big, tall, lanky guy. But once he got behind the kit and started playing, we were both just so blown away. (laughs) jammed for the longest time and then we sat around and we talked about stuff from you know, literature to music to whatever and then got back into jamming afterwards and we spent the whole day and most of the evening with him and we were convinced that he was the one.
3: And then when, once we got out on the road, which was a mere like 10 days later or something, that's how quickly it turned around. We didn't really know him. So it was a whole kind of learning experience, and, you know, he read a lot. He talked about kind of subject matter that we didn't concern ourselves with at that stage. And so he turned out he was a much more interesting character than we had bargained for, mm-hmm. and there was a whole period of getting to know each other. And that's when we got the idea that, hmm this verbose fellow might be able to write our lyrics.
1: <laughs> did, did you ever think back of, like, if we had hired the other guy, one of the other two guys, how different Rush would have been?
3: Yeah, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. No, I'd be,
1: yeah. I'd be doing the plumbing in your house. <laughs> I love that. You, you do tell the story, Alex, that your dad really wanted you to be a plumber. In fact, he'd sometimes pick you up at the bars, right, and take you out. Oh, on... yeah.
4: I'd come out from the bar, and he'd pick me up at one thirty, standing out in the street, and I would go and work with him till. I don't know, seven or eight in the morning. Oh, wow. And then he would take me home, and then he would go to work at his other job. Uh, he, He usually had two or three jobs. My father was a very hard worker. Wow. But he always thought that the music was not a very dependable... Uh, Life and that very few people make it and that I should have something to fall back on. And plumbing was, you can make good money from plumbing. I'm telling you. (laughs) I have the, it's in my name, the business. I put it in your name just in case. (laughs) So (laughs) So I'm thinking about it, you know. I'm still there for you if you uh, want it. I I like to, you know, I like to be busy and get my old gangly wrench out and get at it. (laughs)
2: We'll hear more from Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee on their hobby, Rush, in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Then we'll review the new album from hip-hop superstar Kanye West.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is The Trees from the 1978 album Hemispheres by Rush. We're joined this week by Rush guitarist Alex Lifeson and bassist and vocalist Geddy Lee. The third member of this long-running Canadian trio is, of course, the virtuosic drummer Neil Peart, who also writes the bulk of the lyrics, but, sadly, generally avoids interviews. Rush recently celebrated its 40th anniversary with a tour and a box set called R40 Live. Now, every Rush fan has a different opinion about what the band's best album is. My favorite will always be Hemispheres, maybe because it was the first Rush record I ever bought. So I asked Eddie Lee if Hemispheres is still near and dear to his heart, too. Oh, absolutely.
3: Hemispheres, for me, was an incredibly painful record to make. So I associate a lot of uh, pain with that memory. Uh, we we showed up in Wales at this house, really, near the, studio, the recording studio, and we had nothing written for the album, like mm. zero. And we holed up there for you know weeks, writing this record from scratch, and it was very intense, and the music was very complex, and very difficult to play, but of course we loved it, and when we moved over to the proper recording studio, it was really hard to record it because of how complicated it was to play. And so we finally, We had really high ideals, right? We wanted to record everything in one take beginning to end, you know, 12 minutes of uninterrupted one take, but that didn't (laughs) didn't (laughs) work out that way. We kind of had to divide it into three parts and glue them together kind of thing. And then further, after like three, I guess it was about three months in the country, in the Welsh countryside, we moved to London to do the vocals and... When I went in to do the vocals, I'd realized that I hadn't really considered the key that all these things were in. And for me to sing them, it was one thing to, to, to write them and you're not singing full out, you know, you're kind of singing the melodies in, in rehearsal going, yeah, no, 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 I can do this, yeah, that'll be, that'll work. And then when you actually have the finished record and you're trying to sing to it, I realized I had to sing even higher than I had ever yeah. sung before. Yeah. So it was two excruciating weeks for me of hitting all those notes and getting them right. In the end, we again had problems mixing it, we had to change mixing studio, so it was kind of a bit of a a journey, that album, so sometimes I skip over it I think just due to the painful memories, but it turned out great and I was super proud of it when we finished it.
2: Well it makes sense then how you go from the ambition of 2112 and Hemispheres into a more radio friendly album like Permanent Waves in 1980. I mean, you've already written the most complex music, maybe ever, for a rock band. So, was it a conscious decision to write songs that were a little more concise? Well,
4: Permanent Waves also has yeah. s- sure. some some longer stuff. But yeah, Jacob's Ladder was. was, was I, mm. I
2: think the
3: the key thing in what you're saying is the sidelong rush mm-hmm. kind of ended with Hemispheres, and in my mind, we had done the Fountain of Lamneth, we had done 2112, and now we had done Hemispheres in that sidelong search, and mm-hmm. I was kind of feeling like we were just starting to repeat ourselves in a way, that we had kind of got a formula for these long songs. And that was becoming less interesting to do for me, and that's why you know, I sort of pushed and we all sort of agreed that we should try to accomplish it in seven minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See what that, that time frame, still not a commercial song by any stretch of the imagination when radio was screaming for three-minute songs, we said, well, here, this is seven and a half. Can't you deal with that? (laughs) No, we can't deal with that. So uh, it was a big change, though, and it changed the way we looked at songwriting, and that was a kind of
2: inspiring moment. And yet you were still cutting against the grain, it seemed like, even a song like The Spirit of Radio, which got a ton of radio airplay. Even though it was essentially an attack on commercial radio in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, right. You were attacking radio, and yet, okay, this is the song that radio chooses they're going to play from Rush. So it must have struck you guys as somewhat comical.
3: Yeah, I have to say it did, because it just showed that they weren't really understanding what we were saying. <laughs> and uh, we just figured radio loves songs that have the word radio in the title. <laughs> <laughs> was a kind of success we had never really had before. And it just felt like something was changing here, which is why, at that time, we were originally scheduled to do a live album. And we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, I think what we're kind of onto here is more exciting. Let's not do a live album. Let's go back in the studio. And that's when we made Moving Pictures. And of course, our lives changed. Really, forever after moving pictures.
5: A warrior, mean, mean Sawyer, mean, mean
1: we talk about the way radio stations seem to miss what the lyrics to "Spirit of Radio" were really about, but that's a chronic problem throughout Rush's history. People ascribe lots of meanings and theories to Neil's lyrics that may not have anything to do with what the band intended. Do you ever sit back and say, what the heck? Now Rand Paul, you know, a candidate for president of the United States is quoting the trees. What is that about? Mm. (laughs) I
3: know it's strange the influence that these songs have had on a variety of people from walks of life. And it's true what you say. Some people have very different ideas of what we're saying than what we're intending to say. And, you know, sometimes that's a great thing in the fact that there's a universality in the lyric that allows you to interpret it in your own way, according to your own sensibility. But mm. it does come back to haunt you sometimes.
2: Well, Getty, was it important to you to talk to Neil and say, hey, what are you getting at here, so that you could understand it as you were singing it, or, or was that not important?
3: Oh, it's incredibly important, and sometimes we can't agree, mm-hmm. and the song doesn't get written. He's an incredible songwriting partner and has learned over the years to be more and more generous and less and less insistent on something being used. He's acutely aware of the difficulty that I have singing some of those lyrics. And he will do really almost anything to make my life easier and give me the ability to put more emotion and more tunefulness into the melodies that I have to write. So... um, we talk about these lyrics endlessly at times and sometimes it's not necessary because I feel like I get exactly what he's after and then I just run with it. And when Neil's not there and Alex and I are putting the music together, we talk about it endlessly between us and make sure we're on the same page and, and that we can get behind what he's trying to say because if that, that's an issue too. If mm-hmm. he's trying to say something that we don't feel or can't agree with. It just kind of falls by the wayside.
1: And yet, Alex, I've read both of you and Getty say that never a real fight in 40 years. Not to the point of, like, people actively screaming and yelling and being furious at each other.
4: No, I don't recall any time like that. There have been times where we've been feeling pressure for one reason or another, you know, often external to what the band is. And really, from my experience, you know, my... My brother's come and help me. It's been a remarkable relationship that we've had, working, laughing, living, lots of ups and downs. But we've always maintained a very strong bond and friendship throughout. And I think it really comes down to having respect for each other. And yelling and screaming is never a really good way to get anything done.
3: Yeah, that's our (laughs) Canadian-ness.
4: Sorry.
2: You guys were constantly tinkering, I think, in terms of bringing the sound forward, changing the sound. And then you enter in a third phase here in the 80s where you started incorporating more synths. Your fans would say, Well, Alex's guitar style changed. And, you know, he adapted to different textures and different atmospheres. And Getty wasn't doing enough in the band playing bass and singing vocals. He had to throw in keyboards on top of that so and his voice changed (laughs) there
1: are people who still won't forgive him for changing his voice so you're you're throwing
2: a lot of curveballs at at your fans who like maybe loved a certain album and they go wait a minute this doesn't sound like x y or z record what was sort of behind those attitudes within the band
3: well that's who we are to be honest whenever we finish a record the thing that lingers is not what you did right but what you did wrong or what you believe could have been better, there's an endless amount of uh, improvement that we always feel we need to make in search of writing the greatest thing we can write together. I think that willingness to keep pushing ourselves and that willingness to keep experimenting is the thing that makes us what we are and the thing that kept us together for so many years because we always agreed about that we always agreed that yeah this new direction or or you know let's do an album where we really focus on chorus writing that's a weak area for us maybe we can get better on it or whatever the thing happened to be per record is something we always agreed with now sometimes in retrospect you look back and go wow that was really a left field thing that we did that but at the time it seemed like a good idea
5: (laughs) out your
1: you know we're talking about reinventions again in the 90s you know alternative rock is ascendant let's challenge what Russia is again right roll the bones counterparts I did a long interview with each of you separately when Counterparts came out for a magazine piece. And uh, I remember printing out 10 or 15 pages worth of stuff from this new thing, you know, these interwebs, uh, uh, message boards, right? (laughs) Certainly by that point in Rush's career, 93, you are aware of the fan base. But suddenly here it is, 17,000 word discussions on the intricacies of Cygnus X1, book one, The Voyage. You know what I mean? The level of fandom. I've never gotten hate mail in my 30 Mm -hmm. years as a critic, like the hate mail I get writing about Rush, and I love you guys. I mean, it's just like, you know, you were not properly reverential of the drum fill in Bitor and the Snow Dog.
3: Yeah, our fan base is unbelievable. And let's give credit where credit's due. The fact that they have shared that adventurous spirit that seems to be part of what we are has always kept an audience out there waiting for our new releases, and that's allowed us to be successful, and it's allowed us to continue feeling and acting as bold as we care to with our music. People ask me a lot of times, do you write your songs for your fans? And of course, no, we owe it to ourselves to write what we feel is going to get ourselves off, and that's where we want to be. But having said that, of course, we say that with the knowledge that they're out there and they're, they're interested in what we're up to and you know, you have some sort of confidence that they're going to find something about what your new release is all about and they're going to find that interesting.
2: It's interesting too because they seem to, your hardcore fans, swim with the tide in terms of what you guys are up to and it seems like you're always testing them in some way. I think you guys are viewed as an island unto yourself. But it also seems like Rush listens to what's going on in the world around them musically and is picking and choosing things that they feel that they can play with. For example, something like Roll the Bones. I think the last Mm -hmm. band on earth that would have been chosen by a survey of listeners to do something influenced by rap music would have been Rush.
5: And rock and
4: I think through, uh, at any stage or any musical change, we've always been aware of what's going on. We've walked on the, the shore of the mainstream, but always kind of reached in and grabbed a fish out of it every once in a while, hmm. and used some bit of it as an influence in some of our writing. It's a little bit of an experimental thing and trying new things, always in the quest of advancing and moving forward.
3: And there's always this thing, like we, you know, at different times in our career, we were very aware of what was going on out there. And sometimes you hear something and go, damn, I wish I would have thought of that. And you want to try to understand it and you want to bring that influence. And I know with me, certain singers, I love the way they sing. I love the way they, they use that kind of device to get that vocal effect. Mm. So I try to emulate it my own way and see if I can bring that into my uh, lexicon of vocal (laughs) phrases so to speak. So you're always looking to absorb the good things that are happening around you and hope that that will have a, a bit of inspiration and a good effect on the music you're writing.
1: Well, and that is one of the most inspiring things from Rush in 1974 to Clockwork Angels in 2012. Be here now, living in the moment, always moving forward, always expanding your areas of interest. This last tour and this R40 live box set is about looking back. And you do it in a structured way. You're kind of like taking us backwards. And I've read different things. That that was strange for you guys, but ultimately you got in the spirit.
3: Yeah, I, I loved the, the concept of yeah. it, and I really embraced it early on. Because to me, it was the story. It was a story to tell, and, and I tried to look at it in the most theatrical possible way to make the journey from today back to 1974 almost uh, beyond an audio experience, but kind of a visceral and a visual experience. And it was so much fun at the same time. Mm. To have the set around you morph from one era to another era. And uh, I think the crowd really appreciated that uh, attention to all those uh, sort of details from the period.
1: Can I ask you guys a sociological question, I am aware in my entire life of two female Rush fans. Does that ever strike you when you guys look out on stage and there's 30,000 people and they're ecstatic and there's like six women?
4: I don't Uh, don't think that's the case very much anymore.
1: That's actually not so
3: accurate.
4: For the last 10 years or so, there have been many more women in our audience and quite often i see groups of women who are out there you know friends three or four of them that that come to the show and they know all the material they're singing along they're playing neil's riffs you know air drumming and Mm. (laughs) we see that more and more uh, over the years yeah and,
3: and in fact you know every year there's this festival called RushCon, this convention and it's an intense gathering of rush fans and it's organized solely by women. The most intense Rush fans that run that thing are all women. So uh, there's been a, a change, and certainly over the last 10 years, much more visible. Someone said to me on uh, this tour, they said, I always knew I was at a Rush concert because there was never a lineup for the women's bathroom. <laughs> yeah, right. And right, right. That seems to have changed the story, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said. There was an actual lineup. I wanted to take a picture and show you guys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: this is very encouraging. This is this is true
2: progress in the world.
1: There may even be hope
2: like for peace in the Middle East. That's right. <laughs> Maybe. That's right. You guys have been together for 40-plus years now. The same three people in that lineup during that time, which is remarkable. There was a period there when when Neil had the personal tragedies with his wife and his daughter, the death of them in the late 90s and was there a sense there that the band could end at that point uh most definitely
3: yeah um i think al and i talked about it so many times and we realized that this was probably the end and so we kind of put it aside and just crossed our fingers and tried to help our buddy as much as we could and he was you know uh in a terrible state of mind as Mm -hmm. you can imagine and uh tried to sort of run. Uh, Running was his way of trying to deal with it, and we'd get, you know, postcards from beyond from him uh, from time to time, and so it was a big concern that he was okay and he was going to make it through that.
2: When the band did get back together again in the early 2000s, was there any kind of a change in the dynamic or perhaps a renewal or recommitment to something? Did you sense any of that when Neil came back into the band and said, let's do this again?
4: The first thing we did when he came back was to make a record that was Vapor Trails. And it was a very fragile time. He hadn't played drums in three years. It was a long journey for him to come back to his old self as a drummer. Just the experience in the studio was, you know, everything was just so delicate. It was very difficult to just jump up and down and And go, yeah, it's all back together. And that didn't really happen until the first show of that tour in Hartford, Connecticut. When we were on stage, and I remember we just, we looked at each other at one point, getting, I came back to Neil's drums, and we just looked at each other and knew that we were back Mm -hmm. and we could move forward from that point on. It was a, a very palpable moment.
2: able to continue on for you know another decade and a half now alex i know you've been quoted as saying that hey it looks like the band may be dialing it down a little bit could you clarify for fans how you're looking at the near future with rush
4: i think right now we don't have any plans for anything keep in mind that we had a year and a half off after the clockwork angels tour we didn't talk about anything to do with the band in a year and a half so i think we're just in a stage now where we're Just kind of taking some time, reconnecting with our families and friends and uh, pursuing some other interests and having some fun, really. I know Getty and I love writing together. We've been doing it since we were, you know, young teenagers. And uh, I'd like to think that we'll do it until we're very old men Mm -hmm. instead of just mostly old men. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think
3: for Neil, it's become too hard. And that's a phrase he likes to use to play for three hours. To play the way we feel is being rushed. The way Rush plays is a three-hour show that's very complicated,
5: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, that has taken its physical toll on his body. And it, during the course of any of the last few tours, he's gone through periods that he's, you know, having problems. You mm-hmm. know, whether it's tendonitis or whether it's some other thing. So I think for him it's enough he can't go through all that again so that's going to dictate obviously what performing live is going to mean for Rush, and, and whether that happens or not i can't really say at this point
4: i know neil's in a great headspace now he's really enjoying his life and feels great he's spending a lot of time with his daughter and his family and doing the things that he loves to do with uh, his health intact so that's a very positive thing <laughs> It's been an absolute
1: honor and a pleasure. I could do this for six more hours, (laughs) Let's do it. There's like so much we didn't even get
2: into. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Getty. It's been a pleasure, guys. Big pleasure. Thanks. Really fun. And we want to hear from you. What's your favorite era in Rush's 40-year-long career? I mean, are you one of those mythical Rush fans who happens to be a female? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. When we get back, we'll review the latest album from Kanye West. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
5: of winter.
6: I miss the old Kanye, straight from the gold Kanye, chop up the soul Kanye, set on his goals Kanye. I hate the new Kanye, the bad mood Kanye, the always rude Kanye, spazzing the news Kanye.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called I I Love Kanye from who else? Kanye West and his new album, The Life of Pablo. Kanye West needs very little introduction. He cut his teeth at Rockefeller Records, producing hits for people like Jay-Z and Alicia Keys then ventured out as a solo artist in his own right with a masterpiece, The College Dropout in 2004, an important record for that decade and an influential record in the same way that I think his next four were, late registration in 2005, graduation in 2007, 808s and Heartbreak in 2008, one of the most influential records of its time. I don't think we have Drake without 808s and Heartbreak. Or The Weeknd. Absolutely. And My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy in 2010. Collaboration with Jay-Z on Watch the Throne in 2011. His most abrasive record to date with Yeezus in 2013. And now another controversial work, The Life of Pablo, a record that seems to have been in, in the making forever. Kanye tweeting about it. Tinkering with it, changing the title, it seemed, every week, changing the track listing, the sequencing, the mixing of the record to the point where he had this big rollout event at Madison Square Garden, a live presentation of what he said was the finished recorded product, complete with his fashion show and theatrical presentation. And here he was going to roll out the album immediately after. Well, he didn't. He pulled it back, started tinkering with it some more. Finally, that weekend, he released the record, but now we're finding out that he's playing with it even now, changing some of the tracks and the way they sound. Here is a track from that version of The Life of Pablo, Ultra Light Beam from Kanye West on Sound Opinions.
6: I'm trying to keep my faith We on a ultra light beam We on a ultra light beam This is a God dream This is a God dream This is everything this is everything Deliver us serenity Deliver us peace Deliver us love yeah. We know we need it You know we need it You know we need it mommy you know need it. Mama needs you now Pray for Paris Pray for the parents. This is a God dream. This is a God dream. This is a God dream. We on an ultralight beam. We on an ultralight beam. This is, a this is a God dream. This is a God dream. This is everything. Everything.
5: But I'm looking for more Somewhere I can feel safe
6: And in my holy war I'm trying to keep my faith Why the depression, not blessings? Why, oh, why'd you do me wrong? You persecute the weak Because it makes you feel so strong So I look to the light to make these wrongs turn right. Head up high. I look to the light. Hey, cause I know that you'll make everything alright. And I know that you'll take good care of your
5: child. Oh, no longer am afraid of the night. Cause I
1: That is Ultra Light Beam from Kanye West's seventh studio album, The Life of Pablo. Greg, I think you made a case in introducing this record. The man is musically a genius. It has become very hard to say that sentence with a straight face because his outside antics are so loud, so distracting, and so obnoxious that we can't hear him for who he is. Listen, all of you naysayers out there, John Lennon, could be a jerk, and he was a genius. Those two things, when we're talking about the art, have nothing to do with the behavior. I think, musically, this album sums up all of his many incarnations and evolutions before. Some of that Dusty's chopping soul of the early days, some of the lushness of late registration, heavier on the gospel this time, some of the groundbreaking minimalism of 808s and heartbreak. We even have some of the abrasive industrial techno Kanye of the last album, Jesus. When he previously took on women in a sometimes negative light, it was within the context of This Woman Broke My Heart, just like a century of blues and country musicians (laughs) before him. And then ultimately, the, the blame would come back on himself. I failed here. What is so troubling here? is the misogyny. It's not a new low in hip-hop. We complain about this often. It's a new low for Kanye, where he's talking about impregnating a woman, basically for the thrills of it. I'm struggling here because I can't really tell you what he's talking about because so much of it is so vulgar and filled with hate. You've probably heard about his diss of Taylor Swift. There's a joke to be made about his infamous bum rush at the MTV Video Music Awards about Taylor Swift, but it's only funny if he makes it at his own expense, and that's not what he says here. I think he is such a groundbreaker, you have to at least sample this record, try it, listen to it, but don't give it your money.
2: Yeah, I'm disappointed in this record, Jim, for a number of reasons. The ones you mentioned, you know, the misogyny on this record, it's so unbecoming of Kanye. He's got to be aware enough. He's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. Just these rants, this anger that is still lingering over these past relationships that he's had. Why are we picking on these people still to this day? And, you know, you mentioned the musical aspect of the record. I love Kanye because of his music, and I find on this record there's a lot of filler. It does feel like a work in progress because he never finished it. I think he's put, pushing our buttons intentionally. There's something up here, Kanye. I, don't, I haven't quite figured this record out. Maybe it'll come clear when you finally remix this record a hundred times and release it officially, you know, six months from now. But for right now, I admit I do not get this record, Th- this and the, I don't like it.
1: Do, do you think, I, I, I wrote about it, and I said, this is the, the hip-hop equivalent of Donald Trump.
2: Yeah, I mean, there, there's something to do with the bluster. Just this torrent of words and ugliness and playing upon people's fears and anger, most of all his own, and releasing it as a work of art, saying, this is a masterpiece, love it. I don't think it is one. It's a trash record for me. So an emphatic trash it from Greg and a very half-hearted try-it from me. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we got a bunch of record reviews, a record review roundup from everyone from Mavis Staples to Teen. As always, we have some thank yous
1: to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gornley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
7: New messages.
0: Hello, this is Steve from Omaha, Nebraska. I'm uh, calling to comment on your segment on Patty Smith's Horses. Horses is a fantastic album. I love that album. Not as much as I love Easter, but it's still a great album. And it deserves the respect that it gets. But on your show, you're questioning whether or not it's even a punk album. And I'm like, yes, it's a punk album. It's totally a punk album. I mean, just the definition of punk, I mean, we can talk. That in itself is a discussion, the definition of punk. That you know, you have to realize this is 1975. And the Ramones were barely getting started. This is before The Clash or any of that West Coast thing started out. So it's definitely a punk album. Um, it really pushes the envelope. It's raw and it's rebellious. It really um, it thinks outside of the box musically, and I mean that in itself is an element of rock.
6: The wall is high, the black bond, the baby in my arms in a swathing clothes and the sun. That the sky will split
7: and the planets will shift. those of jade will drop.
0: It's nice listening, guys. And
5: um up to work. Thanks. Bye. Hey, guys. This is
0: James in Los Angeles. Great show on the music of the civil rights. I just wanted to point out in the jazz portion of that show, you, you left out Sonny Rollins' Freedom Suite. It predates some of the other songs, but it's uh, from 1958, and it's every bit as... Uh, think important and impactful. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work.
7: Greg, this is Jason Manley calling, a public school teacher in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I just happened to be reading John Lewis's memoirs, Walking with the Wind, about his experience in the civil rights movement at the same time that I listened to your civil rights music podcast. And I want to thank you for giving me a soundtrack to hear in my head as I read uh, his powerful words. The music, especially the staple singers, showing that combination of joy and hope and also, anger and outrage at what was going on at the time in our country. And I think that that music is still carried on with something like Kendrick Lamar's performance on the Grammys, which shows that we may have come far, but we still have quite a ways to go in this country. I'm the
6: biggest hypocrite of 2015. Once I finish this, if you listen, this sure you will agree. Been feeling this way since I was 16. Come to my senses. You never anyway book your friendship I meant it I'm African American I'm African I'm black as the moon heritage of a small is part of my residence came from the bottom of mankind my hair is nappy you know that it's big my nose is rounded wide you hate me do you? you hate my people your plan is to
7: terminate my culture you
6: know you eat evil I want you to
7: so thanks again for sharing that music with us and uh thanks for all you do
4: Fist Kim Weston the Black National Anthem
7: Hi, my name is Martha Miller. Just want to tell you I've enjoyed the program today on the civil rights music and the national anthem. I will be 81 Tuesday, the 23rd of February, and I can remember learning that song when I was a little girl. My dad taught it to us. So thank you again. I enjoyed that.
5: Sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with a.